Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at the account of Jesus walking on the water. This is Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. While you're turning there, if you're a guest uh, here with us this morning, thank you again for being here with us. My name is Storm Cray. I have the privilege of being on staff here, and it is a great joy to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. Well, let's read through our passage. Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? They got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt, can be a sad reality as we approach texts, as we approach familiar texts in the scriptures. They shouldn't be this way, but in our fickleness, we can be tempted to lose our sense of awe and wonder, our reverent respect for the splendor of what is being conveyed in God's Word. And so I think it can be helpful at times when we approach familiar texts to, to approach them in, in new ways. And sometimes it can also be helpful before we actually get into that text, especially familiar ones, is to proclaim the truths that are there and grapple with them. Our passage is a historical account. Now we often use the language of story and characters when discussing the Bible, and that's not wrong. But I think it can be unhelpful. We are dealing with real history. These are historical accounts with historical people involved. Now let's take a step back and consider that Jesus, a person who has an earthly body, is walking on the water. He's walking on the water. But here's the problem. You and I can read this and be seemingly unimpressed. Not only have we read this account or heard it a tons of times, but, oh, many of us have seen it on flannel graph. And we get it. Jesus is God in flesh. So, of course, he did this. But put your feet in the sandals of those who would have been there in person. They weren't told about this. They didn't read about this. They saw this with their own eyes. This is supernatural, crazy stuff. If we approach texts like ours this morning and don't work hard with God's help, 
to see them with fresh wonder and amazement, then we're in danger of missing what God will have for us. Well, let's get a framework for this passage, because I think what is often missed is that this passage is about the end, with those in the boat worshiping Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. See, this count isn't so much about the disciples' circumstances, it's about the disciples being transformed. Jesus is about changing lives, not necessarily circumstances. See, Jesus is going to use the disciples' circumstances to reveal himself to them in powerful ways. In ways that will change their very hearts and cause them to worship Him as the Son of God. So what we're going to see throughout the course of our time in this very familiar passage is that fear and unbelief in the hearts of these disciples will be replaced with peace and faith that is manifested in worship. We're going to see this change in the hearts of the disciples where at the beginning their, their view of their circumstances is huge and their view of Jesus is small and insignificant. To, to buy in the end, their view of Jesus is, is massive and awe-inspiring and their circumstances are appropriately seen as under the direction of the creator of the universe. See, we need this passage too. God wants to use this passage to transform our hearts and minds as well. We too can struggle with our own circumstances, our own storms that can seem to loom larger than Jesus. We need this passage to remind us that faith produces worship. Faith in Jesus conquers fear and produces worship of him as the Son of God. So when we come to the very end, we're going to see that faith in Jesus conquers fear and produces worship of him as the Son of God. These verses will let us know that, that Jesus is sovereign over our troubles. He even enters into the storms of our lives. So we have nothing to fear but much to worship. Now this passage offers at least five truths about Jesus. Five, five faith-filled truths about Jesus that conquer fear and produce worship in our hearts of Him as the Son of God. The first faith-filled truth is Jesus is sovereign over you. Jesus is sovereign over you. And we see these in verses 22 through 24. And in verse 32, let's read them again. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against him. Down to 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Immediately, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now there's a great sense of urgency that's being conveyed here on Jesus' part. 
Why? Well, in the first place, Matthew doesn't seem to give us any apparent reason. And so we might wisely go through the other Gospels and, and look at the paralleling accounts in both Mark and in John. Well, all three of these accounts are preceded by the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, Mark's account, specifically, is pretty much identical. And so there's not much help that we're going to get from there. Now, John's account, however, offers us some insight at the tail end of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And up on the screen, I've got that for you. It's, it's in John 6.15, if you're interested. This is actually John 15, John 6.15 through 17. John writes, Perceiving then that they, which is the crowd, were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then notice how John's account of Jesus walking on the water begins here in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat. So what is John's account telling us that Matthew's doesn't? Well, there was an apparent political pressure that caused Jesus to flee. The crowd was going to force him to be king, and so he, he left quickly. And so what is Matthew's account telling us that John's doesn't? Well, there's nothing political in view. Matthew just says that Jesus tells his disciples to go, he dismisses the crowd, and then upon dismissing the crowd, he goes to the mountain and he prays. Well, what, are, what are we to do with these similarities and dissimilarities? in these paralleling gospel accounts. Well, and I think this applies to all paralleling accounts, but, but honestly, it just depends on what you're trying to do. If you're wanting to see what, what all the gospel accounts have to say about a particular, or what all the gospels have to say about a particular county, you put them all together, and you see what they've got to say. But just realize in doing so that you are flattening the unique perspectives of all of the gospel writers. And so if you want to see what Matthew has to say about a particular account, we need to let him stand on his own and see what he has to say. And that's what we're doing here this morning. We want to see what Matthew is specifically trying to convey. Matthew, it appears, is trying to convey that Jesus is sovereignly in control. Matthew conveys Jesus' sovereign control in, in three ways. First, in verse 22, Matthew lets us know that Jesus made the disciples go. Now, this wasn't a request or simply instruction, but the Greek verb used here is very strong. It's more like compelled or, or forced the disciples to go. The, the verb is authoritative and commanding. Second, Notice the simplicity of how Matthew recounts Jesus dismissing the crowds in verse 22. You see, in Matthew's account, Jesus doesn't run away from the enormous crowd. He authoritatively dismisses them. How is it that one man can dismiss such an enormous crowd who would have seen such an amazing miracle? Matthew is again trying to convey that Jesus is the sovereign Lord who controls all things. You see, when Jesus speaks, things happen. A crowd of 5,000 disperses at his word. How is this possible? 
This isn't just the man. This is the, the word that created all things. Jesus was the powerful, creative word that, that spoke the universe into existence. When Jesus speaks, things happen because he's in sovereign control. Finally, three. Third way is the way in which Matthew conveys Jesus' sovereign control in and through the storm. Now, this isn't simply Jesus causing the storm to cease, as we read in verse 32, but it's also in the storm's arrival. And here's where we get the urgency that we spoke of earlier. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. You see, in John's account, the emphasis is on Jesus, is on Jesus compelling disciples away from the crowds. But in Matthew's account, the emphasis was on Jesus compelling disciples towards the storm. There's, there's no raging crowd in Matthew, but there is the storm in the distance. The momentum is towards the storm. Why? Because Jesus, in his creative grace, was bringing about a set of circumstances that he would use to transform the disciples' lives. You see, this entire account was by Jesus' design. Jesus has full, sovereign control over the winds and the waves. And this is something that should have been known by the disciples, because earlier in Matthew 8, Jesus already ceased a raging storm. Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is sovereignly in control. This account was not by happen chance. Jesus in his kind and good sovereignty providentially brought all of this about. Nothing just happens. Nothing is just a toss away. We don't believe in some sort of removed, deistic, aloof God. Our God is always personally, intimately working all things together for our good and his glory. This is why it's no surprise that at the end of this account the disciples are worshiping Jesus as God. God in Christ will receive great glory in all that transpires. See, Jesus is sovereign over you. He's sovereign over me. He's, he's sovereign over our trials. He's sovereign over all things. This means that there's meaning and intentionality behind the trials that we face. This is the this is the, the big view of Jesus that will put our circumstances into right perspective. When Jesus is, is rightly seen as the sovereign Lord over all things, what left is there to fear? Brothers and sisters, we can have hope. 
and peace, knowing that the storms that we'll walk through are not out of control of Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over you. This is the first faith-filled truth about Jesus. He's, he's sovereign over you. This truth is meant to conquer fear and produce worship of him as the Son of God. The next faith-filled truth about Jesus is Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you. This one is found in the, in the middle of verse 23. Let's, let's just read all of 23 together again. And after he dismissed the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. <clears throat> While the disciples were in the midst of a bad storm being beaten, literally, the, the, the original says, tormented by the waves, Jesus was by himself on a hillside praying. Didn't Jesus know the disciples' situation? Well, why, why wasn't he taking, taking action and going to save them right then? Well, yes, Jesus knew the disciples' situation. He's omniscient. He, he knows all things. And, and more than that, we just talked about it. He's, he's behind the wind and the waves. This, this verse is illuminating about the importance and power of prayer. Think about it. Jesus knew what was going on. He could have gone immediately and saved them, but instead he prayers. Why? Because there's power in prayer. It's not a leap that Jesus was up on that mountain praying for his disciples and specifically in light of their current and problematic situation. John 17 lets us know that after Jesus prayed on his own behalf and after he praised the Father that Jesus then spent most of his time praying for his own this is what Jesus did. And since we do know that he knows all things, it's easy to conclude that Jesus was up on that mountain praying for his disciples. This is good news. Jesus' prayers for believers sustain and empower them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to, we're to derive great confidence. Fear should be conquered in knowing that Jesus is interceding for us. This is the second faith-filled truth about Jesus. He's, he's interceding for you. This faith-filled truth is meant to conquer fear and produce worship of him as a son. Our third faith-filled truth about Jesus is, is Jesus is present with you. Jesus is present with you. It's found in verses 24 through 27. Matthew vividly shows us that Jesus is present with us in times of trouble. Let's, let's reread it again. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them, walking on the, on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, 
It is I. Do not be afraid. Three observations. First, Jesus knew right where the disciples were. Jesus knew right where the disciples were. It was a, a raging storm. There is little to no visibility. And oh, by the way, it's in the middle of the night. And the text says he came, he came to them. He came right to them. There, there, there's no GPS. There's no floodlights here. Jesus just omnisciently knew right where they were. They weren't lost on it. Listen, even in our struggles, we're not lost on Jesus. Right? The, the temptation can be in trials and in trouble to think that God is somehow far off or, or preoccupied. Otherwise, this stuff wouldn't be happening. But the truth from God's word is that nothing could be further from the truth. Psalm 46, 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And the reality is, as New Testament believers in Christ, not only are we never lost on Jesus, but we have the Spirit of Christ now living within us. We're never lost on Jesus. He always knows right where we're at, because the Holy Spirit lives within us. news when we're in the midst of the storms in our lives. Jesus knew right where they were. Second observation, Jesus graciously entered into their trouble. Jesus graciously entered into their trouble. Now, here's an obvious statement and yet one that's probably worth making. The disciples did not come to Jesus. The disciples did not come to Jesus. They couldn't. Jesus came to the disciples. See, Jesus knew their needs. He made all the first moves that were necessary to come and rescue his people. This is grace. This is grace. One commentator puts it like this. Jesus not only came in the storm, but he came on the storm. Jesus uses their very trial as his footpath. Howling wind, the crashing waves, they don't affect him. The wind and the waves, they are in submission to Jesus. And the disciples' trial is the very means by which Jesus draws near to them. Last, third observation. Jesus chose their trouble to reveal himself to them. Jesus chose their trouble to reveal himself to them. Starting at the end of verse 26, they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now the reason the disciples are to not be afraid is, is not because Jesus has stopped the storm. He hasn't done that yet. Rather, they're to take heart and not be afraid because Jesus, the great I am, is with them. The little rendering of Jesus' identification in verse 27 is, it is I am. It is I am. 
And this language directly echoes God's revelation of himself to the Old Testament saints like Moses in Exodus 3.14 where God reveals himself as I am. If you recall, it's here in Exodus 3 where we read of God appearing before Moses in the burning bush. God was calling Moses to be his chosen servant through whom he was going to rescue his people. And in giving Moses assurances in what he was calling him to do, God revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. And God then goes on to say that, that he is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. You see, in other words, what God is telling Moses is that the, the same covenant God who was present with his people before is the same personal covenant God who is present with him now and will see him through the trials ahead and faithfully deliver his people. And here in our passage, Jesus tells the disciples that the, the great I am is with you. There's nothing to fear. The same I am that once parted the seas to rescue his people is now traversing them to be present with his people again to see them through this very trial. The storm that the disciples find themselves in is not by accident. It's not simply the, the cause and effect of living in the world that they did but the Creator, the Savior of the universe, desired to draw near to him through trial to reveal himself to them in powerful and transformative ways. Brothers and sisters, the, the same promise is true for all of God's covenant people. It doesn't matter how great the storm is raging in your life. The great I am is present with you. There's no need to be afraid. The, the immovable and unshakable one, the, the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. The truth from God's word is that Jesus not only uses our trials to draw near to us, but he uses our trials to reveal himself to us in powerful and transformative ways. Jesus is present with you. This is the third faith-filled truth about Jesus that should conquer fear and produce worship of him as the Son of God. Next faith-filled truth about Jesus is Jesus is strength in you. Jesus is strength in you. This is from verses 28 through 29. And Peter answered him, Lord, it is you command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got on the boat, he walked on the water, and came to Jesus. This is the only account of Jesus walking on the water that includes Peter. It's actually the, the first of three scenes in Matthew that give special attention to Peter. And as you likely know, Peter has a unique place among the disciples. That being said, one commentator astutely says, if Peter does have a place of primacy amongst the disciples, it's a primacy which reveals weakness in faith. Here in our passage, Peter's going to serve as both a good example and a bad example of having faith in Jesus. 
You see, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Peter showed remarkable faith in asking Jesus to come out to him. No one else asked it. And there's nothing in the text that gives us the impression that, that Peter's request was out of arrogance. Peter's goal was to get to Jesus. Not simply to do the miraculous, but he wanted to be with the Lord. A better translation for the beginning of Peter's request is, since it's you. You see, Peter had, a, had great confidence that if Jesus, the sovereign Lord, would, would command him to come to him, that he could get out on that water and go. What we're seeing here is Peter's grasp of the empowering strength of Jesus. We're seeing Peter's grasp of the empowering strength of Jesus. See, Peter knew that he simply couldn't just walk on the water. That's why he didn't leap out of the boat. But first he asked for Jesus to command him to. Peter's faith, my faith, your faith, isn't strength in and of itself. But this is a trap that we can get into when we talk about things like, well, well only if your, your faith was strong enough, then our faith is weak. But Jesus is strong. Faith is a, is a trusting or relying or depending on God. And here we're seeing Peter's reliance on the empowering strength of Jesus to enable him to do the impossible. Something positive that we can learn here from our brother Peter. When we face what seems like the impossible, we're not called to just grin and bear it and do it in our own strength. Because we don't have any. We're called to trust and rely on the empowering strength of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, simply living out a Christian life in a way that is pleasing to the Lord is impossible apart from the empowering strength of Jesus. He wants to empower you to do these things. press forward in this life, becoming more like Jesus with great effort, but in the strength that Jesus provides, so that in all things he might receive praise. Jesus is strength in you. This is the, the fourth faithful truth that should conquer fear and produce worship in your hearts of Jesus as the Son of God. The next and final faith-filled truth about Jesus is Jesus is faithful to you. Jesus is faithful to you. It's in verses 30 through 31. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you come? So what happens to people? Sinks. But why? Like the storm caught him by surprise, right? I mean, it wasn't like it was calm in the boat, and when he took that first step, that all of a sudden the storm came out of nowhere and threw him off by surprise. This was a measured decision of Peter. He knew the reality of the situation. 
But, but what happened? The text says he saw the wind. That, that's, a, that's a pregnant statement. There's a lot more going on there than him merely just seeing the wind. There, there's something going on deep down in his soul. Peter starts to sink because he's shifted faith away from the truth that Jesus can uphold him to his false feelings that the winds were dangerous and walking on the water is ridiculous. You see, there's something else that our brother Peter can show us. Worry, anxiety, fear, looks like glancing at Jesus, but gazing at our circumstances. While trust looks like gazing at Jesus while glancing at our circumstances. As long as Peter's trust was in Jesus, he walked on the water. But when the, the enormity of his circumstances intervened, his, his faith dispersed. Worry, anxiety, fear. He was glancing at Jesus while gazing and, and being overcome by our circumstances. While, while trust looks like glancing at our circumstances, but, but gazing and beholding the, the wonder and awe of Jesus. You see, when Peter gazed and experienced the enormity of the storm, the objective truth that Jesus was and would empower him to do the impossible gave way to his subjective feelings that it was crazy for him to walk on the water in view of the storm. So listen, we're not called to deny our feelings or deny our circumstances. But we're called to bring them in line with and in submission to God's Word. This is what it looks like to, to glance at our circumstances. We, we take them for what they are, they're real. That's what it looks like to gaze at Jesus. We can still acknowledge our feelings, we can acknowledge our circumstances. But when we gaze and behold, all that the Savior is, we put those things under Him. One of the truths of God's Word is that Jesus is faithful to us, even as we are unfaithful to Him. And Jesus' faithfulness to Peter is seen herein, allowing Him to sin. Jesus' faithfulness to Peter was in allowing him to sink. <clears throat> you see, if Jesus wanted to keep Peter afloat despite his lack of faith, he could have. His prerogative. But since he didn't, we must conclude that Jesus let him sink purposefully, intentionally. Well, let me say this in another way. Peter's sinking was grace from Jesus. 
because sinking was what Jesus used to cause Peter to take his eyes off his circumstances and put them back on Jesus. And the same is true for us. In our relationship, we are the unfaithful. Jesus is the faithful. And at times, Jesus in his faithfulness towards us, will allow us to sink so that our eyes will be taken off of our circumstances, off of our false feelings, and be put back on the rock. Jesus is faithful to you. This is the, this is the fifth. This is the final faith-filled truth about Jesus. These truths are meant to conquer and produce worship in our hearts of Jesus as the Son of God. Now this brings us, all of this brings us to verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Everything has been building up to this point. This is the climactic point of the entire account. The whole thing is being orchestrated to get to this point. Worship of Jesus. This is the first time that the disciples have addressed Jesus as the Son of God. This is the first time the disciples have worshipped him in this way. See, they are worshiping him as God. This is the effect of all the disciples have seen and experienced and learned about Jesus. There is an, an inextricable relationship between faith and worship. Faith produces worship. Faith produces worship. The response is worship, and worship from a, a heart that had been changed by their encounter with Jesus. Their faith in Jesus conquered their fear. And their fear was replaced by worship. As we said in the beginning, this, this passage isn't so much about a storm, but about ordinary guys being transformed by their extraordinary Savior. Jesus is about changing hearts and minds. He's about changing lives. And he is pleased to use the circumstances in our lives to reveal himself to us in powerful and transformative ways, in ways that will change our hearts and our minds and cause us to worship him as Savior, as the Son of God, as God himself, the great I am. Faith in Jesus produces worship of Jesus as God. These, these five faith-filled truths about Jesus that we've been talking about this morning are meant to conquer our fears and produce worship. Worship of him as the Son of God. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're intrigued by all that we've been talking about, but you have yet to place initial faith in Christ. Today's the day. You don't have to wait till the next storm. You can cry out 
Save me. By grace alone, Christ will snatch you out. He will save you. He's done all that is necessary in his perfect life and in his substitutionary death and his glorious resurrection to pay for your sins and my sins and, and declare us right before a holy God. Today is the day to trust in the Savior. If you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to be able to talk to you. Doug would be able to talk to you if you're at the end. Maybe somebody who brought you. Please come and talk to us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are God, and you are worthy of our worship. I pray that our faith would be encouraged this morning, encouraged by these truths of who you are and what you do for us. Would we, would we be encouraged, Father, would our, our fears and our worries and our anxieties be, be conquered and in place we would have hearts ready to worship you, worship you and trust you and rely on you? We pray. Give us help. We need help to do these things. We know you want to give us help. Kind of, praise Jesus.